Hello, welcome to the Nerding Out podcast. This is a podcast where I talk to people about things that we're both nerdy about. And in this episode, I talk to Chloe Yeo. She is an amazing designer and also a climate activist. We talk about the urgency of the climate crisis and the Sunrise Movement, which is an organization that is trying to build people power to fight for real climate action. We also talk about design school, the role that design can play in activism, and cute dogs. So I did some research on you. Oh. According to your words on your website, right, you've described yourself as a visual designer, an mm-hmm. environmental activist, beginner acroyogi, mm-hmm. and a dog lover based in Seattle. Let's just go through these one by one. <laughs> okay. So visual designer, what would, how would you describe what that is? I think I will start by saying what it isn't because... I chose that word very specifically. I didn't want to decide on what industry I wanted to go in right outside of college by saying I'm a brand designer or I'm a UI UX designer just because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I guess that's a little bit of background on why I chose the words visual designer. But for me, more specifically, it just means controlling a bit more of the actual execution and aesthetic of what goes into the design of a product, as opposed to, say, the strategy or implementation into a campaign, things like that. Does that make sense? What do you think of the word visual communication design? Because that's the term that uh, UW would use. Well, visual communication design is just a mouthful to begin with. It's an incredibly long string of words to tell somebody that you majored in, so it's much more simple and quick to say, oh, I studied graphic design. I think visual communication design more accurately explains the kind of work that we do because design is not purely visual. It is conveying a message. It's communicating a vision or a set of ideas or values. But I think I'm wanting to lean more towards the side of succinctness and scannability. I used to joke that the word visual communication design was just a euphemism for graphic design, but that's not Mm. it at all. I think you're right where you said you didn't want to pigeonhole yourself into some kind of label, right? Where I think that's the trap that graphic design gets in, where when they say people mm-hmm. say they're a graphic designer, people automatically think brochures and, and assets, where it's mm-hmm. so much more. It's so much more than just, yes, it is how things look, and it is the assets that are bundled with it, but just how people feel and what you want to communicate about your brand, it's just so much more. All right, so the next label you gave yourself, uh, environmental activist. Mm, I guess. I think it actually took me a while to put that on my website, for one, because for a long time I didn't want to label myself as an activist. I think maybe a year or two ago when I was talking to my coworkers about the kind of work I wanted to do, I was like, maybe I'll go into advocacy work and align myself more with the nonprofit sector and things like that just because I was more uncomfortable with the term activist. They didn't have a clear sense of what it meant besides protesting and putting yourself out there in a way that I had never before. But I think, I don't know when I finally put on my website. I couldn't tell you when I made that decision. (laughs) But I think until I started to get more comfortable in doing community organizing and feeling like I wasn't an outsider, just looking in and testing out different organizations and feeling, oh, this is work that I want to be doing and this is work that I feel good about doing and this is a community that I feel like I belong to, then I think it made a lot more sense to me to just define myself in that way where this is not some phase that I'm testing out post-college that I'm just trying to 
create a new community of friends with, you know? That's really cool because the considerations that you mentioned were more about how you want to portray yourself or how you want to label yourself. But one thing mm-hmm. you didn't mention at all is the idea that I think we're always told that we want to keep politics or anything that could be deemed as political out of any conversation, especially in a professional work setting. And mm-hmm. the fact that you kind of embrace that label is actually pretty brave, considering that, yeah, ah. most people wouldn't do that. I, I, I think mm. all training or all inclinations tell us to not to do that. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> I think, I would actually, I think I might push back on that a little bit because I think really it was Karen in our information design classes who pushed us to be a bit more politicized and think more deeply and critically about the social and political issues that we were seeing around us and lean into the things that we actually cared about. The first project on my website, the domestic workers, that was a result from that class. And I think that pushed me to think more critically about the role of design and social change and be like, oh, this is something that I care passionately about and actually can speak more towards and be more proud of when I talk about my portfolio work. So why wouldn't I spotlight that? Yeah. So third label, uh, beginner <laughs> acro yogi. But what is an acro yogi, first of all? Oh, acro yoga is a style of partner yoga, I guess, but as opposed to more traditional yoga, it is more of a a mix of acrobatics and circus art. So it's not necessarily the most intensive form of exercise, or it's not some kind of CrossFit. I think there's a lot of community built around it. Um, I started getting into it when I was at UW because they offered classes at the INA. And I was like, oh, why not? It's free and it's within the gym system. And it was just a really great environment to be around. I think a lot of the principles of acro yoga of trust and consent and kind of just learning what your body can do is really fun and interesting. But I'm not someone who practices often, so I'm still learning and things like that. It can be really dangerous to practice by yourself without a spotter. So in times of social distancing is not something that the acro yoga community is not active right now, as you might imagine. Wow. Okay. <laughs> your last label, a dog lover. I think uh, a lot of us are dog lovers. I've actually mm-hmm. met your dog, I think, quite a few times. Yeah. He or she is a husky, right? Mm-hmm. She's like a husky mix. We have never done the dog DNA test, but she exhibits all the characteristics of other huskies that we see online. So. Yeah, well, if she we- wants to run for office, I think it's about time you get a birth certificate. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, Dubs, though, Dubs is not actually a husky, right? But your dog actually is. Yeah. We'd have to see. Clark is such a mutt of things that we might not even know that she's 100% husky, but she looks enough the part where it's fine. It's just so much faster to say that she's a husky because of her markings. Actually, isn't the thing with... uh, The the reason Dubs was not a husky was because they didn't believe that a husky was friendly or patient enough to be a mascot. And being oh, in all these that. press events, yeah. They, they didn't think that a husky could attend a two-hour or three-hour ceremony and just sit and take photos with people. So they went with a substitute where it was friendlier. And oh I guess gosh. that worked out because Dubs can actually, it's, it's basically a celebrity at this point. <laughs> That's hilarious. Quick tangent, do you have any thoughts on, I, I'm actually somewhat pissed about this, where, so the dubs that we had during our years at UW was oh. the first ever dubs. And they actually decided that all future mascots will also be called Dubs, <laughs> which I, I am not okay with because I think Dubs is something unique in our lives. 
mm-hmm. and and having multiple dubs is is obviously a an insult and a slap to dubs. Yeah, I don't not I'm not like very. I don't feel super strongly about them doing it, but I feel sad because it makes it confusing. Like you can't just call them dubs one, dubs two. It it feels like they don't have as much personality or distinction between one or the other, and obviously. The personalities are so different. This new dubs is a complete different dog than the other dubs. Maybe the mascot naming process is just flawed. It's just weird to have a bunch of students just pick a name for a dog and not let it. I think on first glance, you're right that uh, probably not that many potential names, right? And I think the reason they settled on a repeating name was they thought that people couldn't come up with anything else. But <laughs> you know, maybe it takes a few years, a few generations of bad names to get people to think outside <laughs> the box. Yeah. I'm pretty sure like the old ones were victory or random mm-hmm. stuff like that. Spirit, Sun Dodger, yeah. So you know more previous dubs names <laughs> than I do, but I think having multiple dubs is not yeah. okay. It isn't. I mean, like it, it, if we if there was a new naming process with every generation, I think it could be fun to have names that are more of that time. I, I wouldn't say that this would be a husky or a mascot name, but if it was named, I don't know, what's a famous celebrity right now? Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> something, yeah, something like that. Something that feels more of the time. Maybe. I just had a quick thought. You know, hurricanes, they have the A, A, B, C, right? And they actually change it. So you don't have multiple Hurricane Marias. The next M is going to be different. So mm. I, you could do the same with dubs. Yeah. Come on, you dub. Just, just take the jump. Be brave. So the first topic I'd like to get into is design, especially um, visual design, and, and I guess how that relates to social change or political activism. I guess, first of all, I think, of course, as designers, our favorite question, right? What is design? <laughs> yeah. The age-old question. I haven't actually thought about this in a while. I think it's interesting because I'll be asked this question in the community organizing space just because when people ask, like, what do you do outside of organizing? I'll say, oh, I'm a designer and have to explain a little bit more into what it is. I design packages or I create brands or logos. But I think in a more philosophical sense, design to me is more about the intention, I guess, of of bringing something into existence. Design is so applicable and interdisciplinary that it's not limited to just graphic design or, you know, UX design. So I think I view it more holistically in that way because I don't like to make it something that is exclusive and only reserved for people who went to design school or know who contemporary designers are and things like that. Maybe that's not so much of a straight answer, but that's kind of the way I see it. I think what you said or your definition definitely goes back to the earlier conversation we had about the choice of words for visual designer, right? Where you didn't want to pigeonhole yourself or put yourself in a box of this is what I do and this is the only things that I do, but it's more like a skill set or an approach that you could apply to so many different things. Mm-hmm. So now that we're done with that question, we kind of briefly touched on this, but what, what is visual design to you? Like in practice or just as a definition or the way I do it? <laughs> I mean, the way you do it actually would be the, the best question. Mm. I think if I were just to describe my process, it would be research in any way of the sense. If it's a client project, then understanding who they are targeting this product or website or whatever for, and understanding the motivation behind the project, whether it's coming from investors or coming from internal research or what have you, survey of what is existing out there 
that look similarly or perform similarly to get a sense of how this project or idea fits into that landscape. And then search for inspiration. The hardest part. I know, the most time intensive <laughs> part. Search for inspiration and then distill kind of what I have into a couple buckets of patterns. I think recognizing patterns is a huge part of a designer's work. Here are different strategies that I could take this project. Here's different ways it could go or here's what already exists. And then understanding strategically the pros and cons of each of those pathways. And I think that's pretty much it. I think there's a lot of thinking and then it's relying on the fundamentals that we've learned in design school and just being observers and consumers of design products and making it happen on pixels. <laughs> well, one thing you mentioned that grabbed my attention, you don't have to go into any specifics or details, but oh. I think you mentioned right, doing research and trying to figure out what the client wants or what they want to accomplish. And one thing is that sometimes people don't know what they want. They don't know mm. why they are doing this. It's something mm. that they do just because it's something that you do. How would you actually try to figure out what is the purpose of this project or how does the client want to portray themselves when they themselves might not actually have that answer? <laughs> That's a good question because I think oftentimes clients won't have that answer, but I will preface by saying it's an important question to ask, especially as we approach design from a more sustainability lens, questioning what is the purpose of this product? Do we need to be introducing something new into the world using resources that we don't need to be using? It's important to catch clients in those moments. Of, is this a good use of your resources time right now? But I think when approaching asking clients this question in a kind and soft way that doesn't feel insulting to them, because <laughs> you don't want to ever be like, do you really need this product or do you actually want to be producing this thing? Because on one hand, if you're doing work freelance, you want to be taking all the work you can get and not potentially shutting down projects that would be providing you income. Even as a firm, right, you probably don't want to turn down client projects. Even exactly. if it's a project they're taking up because they have leftover marketing budget or something, like you should, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, are you sure you need this ad campaign or like, can I? <laughs> it's like asking the question, like, are you sure you want to pay us to do this? Yeah. But I think being able to have that conversation is a huge privilege and still important to have if you have that capacity. But what has worked in the past is having healthy relationships with clients to be able to push back on them. So I think once that is established, it's much easier to push back on clients and say, can you tell us a little bit more about the motivation of this project? Can we schedule a call so that you can give us a bit more background and insight on the research that went into the development of this product in a way that isn't, you know, confrontational? <laughs> I don't know that I've pushed back successfully on a new client. I think if I've had hesitations about it, then I'll just turn the project down without forcing that introspection or reflection on them. Not personally, but maybe as a firm, we'll decide that the product or the company doesn't align with our values and just decide to part ways with that client. Wow. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's like, I think the why I chose to work for a company that has values grounded in sustainability and social justice mm -hmm. to be able to do work that we feel good about and feel proud of that isn't contributing to society in a totally negative way. Yeah. I mean, if you're in industrial design, the mm -hmm. questions of does this product need to exist probably is actually really intense, especially when it comes to climate change and sustainability. Mm -hmm. Like, do you really need another fan? Do you really need another phone? <laughs> especially with phones where there are serious ethical issues with mm -hmm. the processors in your phone are mined by children. Mm -hmm. 
in conflict in, minerals. Yeah, right, right. And there's only one place to get the the silicon on your phone, and that's by paying these warlords who are forcing children to go in these makeshift mines that could collapse any moment. Yeah, the biggest opportunity for all for designers across the spectrum is though in understanding all of the effects across the line. So if you have a fan, as you mentioned. You have the industrial designers coming up with a product who can strategize on the amount of material that can be used, and then you have the packaging designers who have to consider also the materials that encompass this thing and the end of life for both. And then you have the graphic packaging designers like me who have to decide the communication priorities within that package and how we're communicating the recyclability of the product or the end of life. Yeah. Next, I want to talk about environmental activism. You are a leader of some sort in the Seattle chapter for the <laughs> Sunrise Movement. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Like, what's? Do you have an official title? Is that a, is that a thing? Yeah. Since Sunrise is comprised of all volunteers, titles are not bestowed upon one another. It is more of just a descriptor to make it more clear to the external world. But I'm technically the outreach team lead of the Sunrise Seattle Hub. Should I just describe what that means? <laughs> Well, first of all, let's let's talk about what the Sunrise Movement is, because I think a lot of people who aren't progressives don't know what that is. Yeah. By definition, the Sunrise Movement is a social movement um, that aims to stop climate change and create millions of jobs in the process, as well as the opposite, right? We are aiming to create millions of jobs and stop climate change in the process. We're a youth... Yeah. We're youth-led, which means we welcome anyone under the age of 35 to join the movement. But of course, people of all ages' experiences are welcome. We're creating this community of young people to build up their voices and better engage them in political and environmental activism in maybe a way that they haven't been before. We have a two-pronged strategy of building people power and building political power. If we seek to create a country where we can actually create policies and govern our communities in a way that makes us approach and defeat the climate crisis, then we have to have political power. And the way we do that is building up people power to put officials in place that will actually stand by and stand up for people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One thing you mentioned, right, is where you you kind of flipped a phrasing around where you said you wanted to combat or defeat climate change and build millions of jobs in process. But then you also Mm -hmm. flipped it around, you said you wanted to build millions of jobs and in the process, defeat climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a, a genius framing of, of the issue, right? Because mm-hmm. it's almost like the, the Green New Deal thing where, yes, it does stop or combats climate change, but the whole point of it is that you can build an entire new economy around mm-hmm. combating climate change. So, so you're not just doing this abstract green thing, you're actually creating jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more tangible thing that people can grasp onto. Mm-hmm, so cool. Definitely. Let me list out some of the other uh, accolades here. So I think I've seen what Instagram well, stories. This is, like, this is like a roast. <laughs> I, oh no, it's a positive roast. Yes. Yeah. So I think I've seen Instagram stories where you handing out brochures on election day, something about climate, like voting to align with the climate, right? Mm-hmm. And you do Fridays for the Future, what, every week, mm-hmm. I think? or hopefully every week uh and uh you've actually been retweeted by greta thunberg herself which is uh (laughs) quite an honor so uh can you talk about that sure just about the everyday activism aspect or 
Fridays for Future in particular? Or what? Yeah, let's talk about Fridays for the Future because that's that's something that's actually been pretty big, right? Because Greta has been pretty big, but it's also like people don't know what it's for or what it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess Fridays for Future was started by Greta maybe a couple a couple years ago now, just as her striking outside of Swedish parliament to raise awareness about the climate crisis by physically leaving school and calling upon adults and people in positions of power to do something about the climate crisis. And it really caught on after a couple months of doing it by herself as a repeatable action that people can take to raise awareness. I think what made it so viral or easy to do is that the action itself of a child walking out of school with a sign saying, you know, school strike for climate was something that people feel more comfortable doing as opposed to going to a rally or going to a potentially arrestable action. I guess the core value of Fridays for Future of just standing in a public place with a sign is simple enough. Anyone can take this action. But what I like about Fridays for Future Seattle is, one, it's close to where I work. So it is, I am able to leave my office for an hour on Fridays. Do people ask or do you find questions where is, is there any point in doing activism in Seattle where you, you're in what a very progressive town, you're in a very progressive state, the city probably agrees with you? Is that a good summary? No, actually, I think people, especially with the coronavirus crisis, actually, of seeing all of the gaps in our philosophy as a city and how we parade around pretending to be progressive and not actually implementing progressive policies, There's a huge gap there. Even our city council elections, the money that went into funding non-progressive candidates or even our state senators not announcing their support for Green New Deal makes stances, Washington and Seattle is a progressive city, less firm. Because we see, say, Mayor Durkin, who's the mayor of Seattle, wanting to support climate action, but not actually being a leader in... Okay, yeah, but she's not for re-election soon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Michael decided to vote her out. We see her, we see her championing things like putting more electric vehicle charging stations around Seattle, as opposed to championing better bike pathways for our bike commuters, of just not, not taking more aggressive stance toward climate action, I suppose. A lot of the progressiveness of Seattle is very performative, as it is probably in a lot of cities, where people want to virtual signal using tote bags and reusable water bottles, which is great, but calling upon more systemic changes, calling upon our institutions to be better and doing more is a step that a lot of people haven't taken yet. Um, And so I think doing things like Fridays for Future where it is consistent and calling upon people to break out of the norm and stand up more proudly and loudly is um, a step that a lot more people need to be taking. Yeah, I think you've actually just convinced me. I think I started the conversation kind of on the other side where I I thought activism in a less progressive place was probably more important. But I'm actually seeing the other side now where activism in in a progressive place might actually be more important because you're supposed to be role models or you're supposed to create an example of how a city can be more green and be more successful, whether that's financially or whatnot. But basically, Mm -hmm. someone needs to create something for other cities to look at for yeah. where, where Seattle could be could be that place right especially you have like Jay Inslee yeah. just running for president just to talk <laughs> about climate change like come on we can we could get things done here I know I know and I think that is like a such a crucial moment right of we don't want to settle right we want to keep pursuing a society that is just and works 
for everyone. So it's a nice vision to aim for. Yeah, and just one quick thing about what you mentioned about the car chargers, right? That is <laughs> such a, honestly, it's such a dumb way to look at the solution where it's very much like a top-down rich person's solution to the problem where honestly, you, <laughs> what, you, you, what, you put car chargers around, you know what that does? It just gets the rich guy with a Tesla to charge his car. That's it. Like, that's, exactly. that's it. Makes his life easier, which doesn't need to be more easy. Are you not helping? Whereas, like, if you change all the buses to electric vehicles, or mm-hmm. that's going to be much more substantial, much more impactful, exactly. where other cities can actually copy that. So I guess the next part is, can you talk about why climate change is a scary problem and something we should not just see as something that's troubling, but actually try to actively combat it and defeat it? I think for whatever reason, a lot of conversations begin with the presumption that climate change is bad, but no one ever talks about why it's bad. It's just, oh yeah, we we all know it's bad. Yeah, I think that a lot of that comes from a place of denial, right? Of not wanting to be trapped in that anxiety and grief about what it can do to our societies and the world in general. But I think for me that like scariness and fear, a lot of it comes from, I guess the way that it can fundamentally change our societies, not from a sense of like natural disasters and sea level rise, but in the way that it affects our communities in long-term ways, whether it is toxic air that is polluting communities for generations that leads to long-term asthma or breathing difficulties and things like clean water access that does similar things and has long-term health impacts. These are preventable things that will be worsened by the climate crisis that we're just turning a blind eye to. When I talk to people, I guess when I talk to people, it depends on who the audience is. If it's a more upper-class, affluent group of people, I might frame it from a sense of, you know, the things that they view as leisure, whether it is like ski trips or vacations or access to the luxuries they have in life will be not only gone, but the people within those communities will be impacted in ways that are unimaginable to them. You're not just losing your family ski vacations, but the people who are dependent on that revenue from those trips or the people who work those jobs will be impacted in ways that you know you can't imagine. They're losing their incomes, they're losing their housing, they're losing their healthcare. The climate crisis is putting pressure on all of our systems in place right now. And same with the coronavirus crisis, you know, exposing all of the problems that we have within our economic, employment, healthcare systems that need to be remedied. So when we think about the next, you know, obviously the big the next big earthquake that's gonna wreck the West Coast. How are you going to even recover from that one? We can't even set up the proper systems in place during a global pandemic. A great book on this actually is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells that dives into the impacts of the climate crisis on a number of levels. The effects of that, we might not be able to know yet. An example that he gave was this breed of deer or antelope maybe in Southeast Asia that just had a mass extinction because they had this illness that was that activated some bacteria in their blood that was only caused by humidity and heat that just wiped out an entire species. So I think all of the unknown variables of the climate crisis are just, there's way too many to not do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And, and you're right that it, it it's going to domino too. Like one species goes mm-hmm. extinct and then suddenly like the whole food chain just wipes out. But I know. 
But I think I think what what you mentioned about appealing to the the more affluent people by talking about their leisure activities was actually really interesting because a lot of people said this when coronavirus first started too. Right? They were like, "Oh, the coronavirus doesn't care about who you are, doesn't care about race mm. or anything." But but no, the reality is maybe strictly speaking, it doesn't care. But we do know that people who are brown and who are Hispanic are, are much more impacted. And that's mm-hmm. going to be the same with climate change as well, where like, yeah, sure, maybe the rich can't go to the beach and drink martinis, but anybody can't go skiing, but like, the poor are going to be impacted in much worse ways. And maybe the rich can just stay air conditioned all the time or be pretty isolated from, from the, mm-hmm. the effects of climate change, but a lot of people can't. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's just like unconscionable. How did you first get started doing, I guess, either political activism or environmental activism? Like, what was the the switch that clicked for you? (laughs) This is interesting. It's a hard question to answer because there was never a switch that went off. It was very gradual. And I think that is the reality for a lot of people. It's really hard to identify when exactly that moment was or what happened. What I have condensed my story down into was (laughs) post-college, I think. Because even within college, I was very politically and politically apathetic. I think a lot of people post-2016 feeling that idea of my contribution clearly doesn't do anything when there are millions of other people out there who feel differently, even in a progressive city or whatever. I didn't feel urgent. I didn't feel like important work that I was doing. And like I said before, I didn't consider myself someone who would go into advocacy or activism work. But a huge motivator was the IPCC report that came out, actually. I don't know if you remember when it came out in the fall of 2018, I want to say, that said we only had 12 years to address the climate crisis before we, you know, go into unimaginable catastrophes. I think having that timeline brought that sense of urgency for me. Having that, I think, really shifted my position of, okay, we actually have to do something about it because... We only have maybe two election cycles to make substantial progress before unimaginable consequences are had. So once that report came out, I started looking into organizations in Seattle. There's plenty of climate justice organizations here. So I just shopped around a a little bit to see what aligned with my values and what worked with my schedule. And I found Sunrise and a couple other groups that I really liked and the communities that I found in them have been incredible and I'm really grateful to be a part of it. Yeah. What was the first step like? Because it is hard just going from not doing it to to doing it, like being talking in front of people, especially in contentious situations. Like I know when the first time I phone banked, called voters was in the 2018 midterms. And it was hard because just the nature of phone banking in general means that people don't want to pick up their phones. People get annoyed when they pick up their phones. And they get even more annoyed when they realize it's not someone they know. It's just someone. And so many times people just hung up or just yelled or swore at me, right? But after a while, it worked. And I do feel like I was making maybe a minute difference. But even Mm -hmm. then, like that first step was incredibly hard. So what Mm -hmm. was that like for you? I think it first looked like I saw a strike event advertise on Instagram. (laughs) It was their March 15th rally. Maybe it was a different day, but mid-March climate strike happening at Cal Anderson Park in Capitol Hill. I was like, this seems pretty cool. I think that we should go. So I posted the link in my work Slack and I asked if anyone would go with me because I didn't want to go alone. (laughs) 
And one of my coworkers said yes, so we decided to go together. And I think that was really helpful to have someone else with me who was also interested and familiar with the concept of climate justice to do this with me. I was really nervous though the first time. I had my little sign that said Planet Over Profit rolled up really tightly in my hand and I was like, when do I like <laughs> open it? I don't know if there's a certain time I need to like hold it up. And it was pretty scary. But in seeing there were kindergartners holding on to their little field trip rope being led by their kindergarten teacher to come out to this rally and seeing, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers take the time out of their day to do this and put themselves out there was enough to make me feel comfortable and say, okay, I don't need to feel self-conscious or weird about being here and standing up for what I believe in. I don't know how to convince someone to step out of their comfort zone, but I think once you do it and if you have someone there with you to help you through it is helpful. <laughs> yeah. And what you mentioned about seeing the kids, I think that's probably what, one of the most inspiring parts about the whole mm -hmm. movement is that it is these kids' futures that, that we're fighting for especially when the kids themselves are doing it. Even mm -hmm. when it's not about climate, but it's about like, uh, gun control. Like, mm -hmm, like March for Our Lives. Yeah, and those, those kids, they were unstoppable and it was super inspiring. But even then, right-wing media successfully turned them into villains. But and it's the same with Greta too, right? Greta started mm -hmm. out as this inspiring figure, but now you can see the power of negative media just completely trying to destroy a person who's yeah. just like, it's just a normal person who's just, she doesn't want to be a leader, right? She just wants to, mm -hmm. just, just wants climate change to, to <laughs> she just wants adults to think about the topic. But, exactly, especially literal children. Like, yeah, she, what she started yeah. at, what, I don't know, like seven at? She was, she, or, she wasn't, well, the way I understand her story is that she formally started activism at 16, but I'm sure she's been doing this for much longer. Yeah. So, next thing I wanted to talk about. When you first talked about the Sunrise Movement, right, you talked about people power, but also the other mm -hmm. part, which is political power. Mm -hmm. And I know you also mentioned that you were politically apathetic for a very long time, especially mm -hmm. even, even after uh, 2016. And I, I think you tweet a lot more about climate, but you t try to maybe tweet less about politics. Mm. Do you think that's, do you think environmental activism is a little bit separate from political activism, or do you think it should be kept separate, or it should be the same? Or... Ooh, that's a good question. I don't think it should be kept separate. I think there are so many legacies of politics worsening environmental racism or policies that continue to act against people. Like climate justice and social justice are intertwined. They are you can't separate them. And naturally, all of those things are politicized. For some people, it is easier to pursue environmental activism as a first step. It is much more inviting and approachable as something like, oh, I want to reduce my carbon footprint, or I want to reduce my meat consumption to better care for animals, or you know, X, Y, Z, something that feels a bit separated from politics. I think a lot of that, but I always say that taking individual environmental action is a, is a great starting point until you realize how broken our systems are and how impossible it is to try to zero waste your way out of, you know, consumption, then is when you have to actually take a political stance and do the work. It's, yeah, I don't think it's like intentional that I don't like tweet about politics or post about politics as much. I think like Sunrise right now really excels in mobilizing young people to phone bank for Green New Deal champions across the U.S. So we have phone banks going on for, say, Charles Booker or Jamal Bowman in New York to mobilize 
people across space and time to advocate for the politics in areas that they aren't in. So I think that accessibility is also a huge factor of people wanting to get into politics, but being like, oh, well, I don't have an election coming up. I don't know what I can do. But making it easy for young people to get plugged into elections happening in other areas and make change when change might not be immediately available in their communities. Yeah. When you say the Sunrise Movement talks about people power, does it mean the individual doing individual actions to limit carbon footprint? Or is it just more like ultimately people power serves to create political power, right? I think more of the latter in understanding that like community building is really important. One of the long-term goals of Sunrise is to approach a mass youth uprising by the November election. So that no matter who gets elected, who whoever is in office by November, there is substantial pressure on them to enact Green New Deal or Green New Deal policies right. by day one. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's, I mean, yeah. that's already like predicated on a big if, right? Like you need, yeah. you, you basically <laughs> yeah. need Joe Biden in, in the White House, right? Uh-huh. Trump, Trump is basically just going to put a piece of coal as, as this EPA guy or whatever. <laughs> I, I do really believe personally that I think environmental activism is pretty much should be pretty much tied in with political activism, especially in the yeah. U.S., where it is basically a, a partisan issue yeah. at this point. Right. One more thing I want to touch on for the Sunrise Movement is so during the twenty twenty primaries, they actually yeah. endorsed uh, Bernie. Did you have any thoughts on that? Was there any? I don't know if you could talk about this, but was there any discussion of? whether or not to endorse at all, considering that there are quite a few progressive candidates. Cause, mm. I, mean, I, I was a Warren person, so that was, that was sad. <laughs> yeah. I think Sunrise did a really great job with their endorsement process in general. They made it incredibly transparent and strove to include as many people in the movement as possible, you know. And in the breakdown, it was a pretty substantial amount of people are also Warren supporters. Maybe it was like about 25% versus like 60% Bernie. So they acknowledged that there is still support for progressive candidates and it's not meaning that you can't support the candidates that you support as well. But yeah, I think it's not as if they want every single person in the Sunrise Movement to convert to supporting one true candidate as well. So I don't know, I think there were no substantial conflicts or controversies that happened with the endorsement. And I was just very excited by the amount of mobilization that occurred afterwards of people phone banking, of canvassing, of door knocking. It was, it's really cool to see happen. I guess what, one thing we haven't discussed yet, which I really wanted to ask you was, because obviously you're doing a lot of work in activism and in Sunrise, but do you, do you find that your design skills apply at all? In, in what manners have you applied your design abilities to the movement? Nice. For the more traditional things of just creating social media graphics or designing a website, I think those apply very nicely just because it's a, it's a skill that any movement needs. Even like art direction and photography is um, important, just like the way that you document things and controlling the message and narrative that gets posted to social media. I think apart from those more traditional applications, a lot of the things that you learn in design school of time management or project management or strategizing, especially like strategizing for campaigns, I think has applied really nicely of being, okay, who's our target? What are some tactics that we can use? What are different ways that this could play out? How can we plan for XYZ scenarios? Just all the planning and process that goes into any design project has been really helpful. Teamwork, very, very useful soft skill. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised how a lot of people aren't 
I, I guess because we had so much practice with teamwork. <laughs> but I love, yeah. Yeah. But also from strictly a design standpoint, you said you made graphics and stuff for social media and websites and whatnot. Do you find it's different designing for something that's very much bottom up, very much a grassroots movement, whereas traditional brand design, right, is very much corporate, top down? And I think a clear parallel here, right, is the, the one of my favorite political designs ever was the Hillary 2016 identity. But yeah. that was beautiful and sharp and everything, but with the clear caveat that it was very, very corporate. And it was not authentic in a way that Bernie's identity was, which was very much bottom-up and very crowd-driven. But that's a really long-winded way of asking, how does design work in a movement with no real leader? There there is no top-down, this is our brand, this is how we look, this is our color, this is our font. How does that even work? Does every chapter just have different brands or...? (laughs) There is like a national identity that um, is pretty applicable and used across the board, which is easy. It's a very Source Sans Pro movement, so it's used across all of our materials. Are you familiar with Source Sans Pro? <laughs> it's an Adobe font. It's designed yeah. by Adobe to be an open source yeah. UI font. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we use that Source Code Pro as well. But our like the brand guidelines are not strict necessarily. You're not going to get reprimanded for stepping outside of the brand guidelines. But So that keeps it pretty in line, keeping the visual look pretty tight and I will say it is interesting from a design standpoint of the graphics I create there's always a point of like oh my design friends would really appreciate this but would it actually get engagement on social media would people actually read it so there's a huge distinction that I constantly fight with with myself against where it's like ooh, I really like this solution that I came up with but I need to find something that is quicker to read more punchy and maybe less, I don't want to say pretentious, but it gives off that idea. You want it to be approachable and welcoming. Yeah. I don't know, have you heard the joke where it's like graphic designers or the longer you're a designer, the smaller your text gets? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's a point of like, if it's not accessible, nix it, but yeah. <laughs> but it looks nice. Yeah. And you gotta turn it tight, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting with design for social change, where I, I know one of the, the coolest examples of this is in the UK, they had an election and one of the parties is the Labour Party. And they actually had this whole organization called Artists for Labour, mm. where artists got together and made posters and all these cool different designs, and they would actually sell these posters and the profits would go directly to the party. Whereas I don't think there is a parallel in the U.S. of designers for a cause. Like maybe there is one in name, but I don't know one that actually does stuff. I mean, as designers, we like to talk about how we change the world and really drill down to what the solution is. How would you actually rebrand climate change? <laughs> I'm sure you agree it has a branding problem, right? I mean, even yeah. just the wording itself. We went from the word warming, warming to climate change. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, I think you also raised a really great point about where design is failing in the U.S. to be politicized or be engaged in social change. There's a lot of problems with design as it exists, like design as a culture right now. But I think in terms of like rebranding climate change, I would rebrand it as like the climate crisis. If the climate crisis was my client, I'd want to really increase its... You want it to be near universal, right? And influence everything you'd want all 
food packaging, you'd want all media like Netflix, Hulu, Instagram, Facebook, anything you consume to have climate change present. It'd be funny if they were just like climate crisis ads on every on everything. You'd like scroll on Instagram, be like, the climate crisis back again. <laughs> How, what are you doing to stop the climate crisis? Or like, obviously, that is not those kind of disruptive behaviors are not what would actually help. But if it were so universal and persuasive or pervasive and top of mind in every interaction we had with every object and every interface, that would be the ideal. Because for me, that is my everyday reality. <laughs> yeah. But even for like the nerdy little details, uh, what font or what color? <laughs> oh, oh, ooh, hmm. Great I think color is pretty, pretty straightforward. Well, yes and no, right? You have the blues and greens that everyone already uses, but if you wanted to make it more alarming, urgent, you'd want to lean into the reds or the yellows. It'd be interesting. Well. You could approach this as like either a purely aesthetic exercise, as like not a functional exercise. You know, if I wasn't actually trying to convince people of acting on the climate crisis and just wanted to create something fun and pretty, <laughs> it'd be a fun exercise to, well, yeah, I don't know, adopt a corporate brand to the climate crisis in a satirical way, if that makes sense. But I think there's a UK group. They have an account called Adapt that does a really playful and approachable way of talking about the climate crisis. Yeah. Like, okay, wait, I don't know if you can even see this. Like this, this text just says like green or new green feels with some like groovy type and things like that. It makes it more accessible to this Gen Z generation mm-hmm. of where is, where is, uh... Maybe we need to get climate change into Fortnite. Yeah, <laughs> sure, yes, exactly. But I don't know, just by making it... Someone could do like a TikTok it, song. Yeah, oh my gosh. Do a, tic- a viral TikTok dance for a climate crisis. Yeah. There's like so many audiences to try to appeal to with, I think, to come up with a brand strategy that would work. It's literally the ultimate design challenge. <laughs> yeah. Uh... And uh, I guess the last thing I want to touch on is, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I'll repeat it again, is that one thing I, I find really commendable and just really inspiring is the fact that You've been doing climate activism for seemingly a really long time now, <laughs> and you're still doing it, and you're keeping at it. And I think even for someone like me who truly believes and is truly horrified by what will happen if we don't solve this crisis, I still am continually discouraged and saddened by like, hey, like I don't think Fridays for the Future is accomplishing anything. I don't think like it, it's really hard for me to see the immediate results. And mm. I feel like that's really hard. And especially for a lot of people who probably care less about this than I do, it probably is hard for them too, right? Because even if you talk about it in design terms, where one of the core principles of interaction design is that every time you perform an action, there needs to be some kind of visual or tactile feedback so that the user knows that an action has been performed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there is that feedback in environmental activism. It is very hard to keep at it when it seems like no one cares, right? Congress isn't going to pass anything, right? We've got a Republican-controlled Senate. Or even, like you mentioned, in local government, we live in one of the most progressive cities in the U.S., and even so, the mayor and the city council, it's pretty much just virtual signaling and not actually doing the actual work. What what keeps you in the fight, and how can you keep just going after this week after week? (laughs) I think... Those are really great um, things to pull out, even as activists ourselves of considering, are we making an impact? How do we measure that? How do we know that we're actually doing anything? But I think for me, what keeps me going every day, (laughs) despite 
all of the headlines and despite all the things telling us otherwise. The communities that have been built around climate justice and organizing in general of being surrounded by people who have totally different backgrounds from you. You have children, you have retirees, you have other college students, you have high schoolers, middle schoolers. Just people from all walks of life coming together under this one cause is really beautiful. And as cheesy as it sounds, it is really inspiring. I think a lot of times I'll phrase it as like, it's as if you are all working on a group project in school, but instead of you being the only person doing the work and everyone else slacking, everyone is the overachiever. <laughs> is, like that like, is that what it is in VCD? Like, are you guys just slacking off? <laughs> uh, well, VCD was a whole nother, like, whole nother animal that was also amazing and beautiful. But you know, it, it feels rewarding when everyone is putting their contribution in and it's really energizing. And seeing the ideas and visions that people have is really life-giving. I think even Fridays for Future itself, when we are on the street doing chants and singing, it is less about how many people can we convince to join our movement today and more about recognizing this is the community I have. These people um, care about this in the way that I do. I am standing with them. They are standing with me. And that is something to celebrate. I think that is pretty much what keeps me going every day. Like, sure, there are days and weeks that you might feel burned out and really brought down by things like the coronavirus crisis. Mostly it's fun. There's a lot of joy in the work. There's a lot of beautiful solutions to the climate crisis that exist out there. And it's like when you have constraints on a design problem and then you're like, Ooh, this is really hard. But then you come up with creative solutions in ways that you couldn't have before. That is really fun. Yeah. Do you want me to address that? Is the work doing anything kind of thing? <laughs> I think you should. I think it's a huge source of doubt, right? Yeah. I think I'm trying to think of how I got to this point. I think for one, seeing the scale of change happening is inspiring of being like, whoa, we grew as a hub from two teams last year to nine teams. And this is 20 to 30 more people involved in the movement than we had last year is already incredible amount of organizing and change. That is one metric that has helped keep me grounded as opposed to like, oh, we didn't win this election or this campaign, etc. But even the social changes that you'll see, the effects of it, we might not know for generations to come. Social progress and any change in the cultural common sense will be very hard to tell until maybe the next generation, generation after. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we're planting the seed. One of the kids you talk to in kindergarten might Ooh. become like president <laughs> one day or something, right? So, maybe. So yeah, hopefully we'll, the first president from Washington State. Oh my gosh, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, there's an activist named Deray McKesson. I don't know if you've yeah. heard of him, but mm -hmm, from Black Lives Matter. Yeah, Black Lives Matter. But one of the things he said, which hit me like a rock when I first heard, it was right after the 2016 election, and a lot of people were just resistance, 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 and and yeah. it was just like everyone expressed solidarity and a willingness to fight and oppose injustice and racism and misogyny and so on. But one thing he said was that a lot of people were into the idea of resistance, but very yeah. few were actually into the act of resistance. Yeah. And I feel like that's the place where a lot of people are with climate change as well, where, yeah, we all agree climate change is bad, but very few people are willing to take the next step into actually doing some kind of action. So yeah. what would you say to them? How would you get them to make that first leap? Right, Because for you, it's going to some random event with a coworker or... For someone else, it's probably just watching, I don't know, some video on YouTube or something. But, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I think that, firstly, is a great distinction to make of 
Resistance itself can take many, many, many forms. It is not purely going to a strike or protest. It is choosing not to, say, buy this product off of X company, or it is choosing not to take this job or this career because of its impacts and whatever. I hope that people realize that resistance can be being unafraid to show up as your whole self with your family and public, things like that. So I think grounding in that is really important um, so that people don't feel intimidated by the idea of resistance or activism, but to get people motivated and take action. We need all kinds of people, all kinds of skill sets in order to rebuild a world from what we have now to make a better one. But it's not just people holding protest signs or people getting out the vote. We need to fundamentally change the way we think about every aspect of our society. And so if you're doing that within your industry, if you're doing that within your career or your school, that is enough and we need that. Okay. Well, uh, uh, the last thing is, is there anything else you want to say at all? Just anything? I think I'm just encouraging more designers to think about their political and social opinions and seeing how it can apply within their work is important and valuable because you just didn't get that opportunity. I don't know. Do you think that we should have learned it in a class or at least had the discussions? Were you, did you already have your political opinions at that age? Do you think it would have, you would have benefited? About climate change in general or just about design and, and impact? Both, maybe? I think, I don't think we had many conversations about climate change at all in college. I don't think I ever had that conversation. Everyone just assumes that, oh yeah, we all know climate change is bad, right? And we're just never going to talk about it again. I think we talk about the impact of design a lot, but we keep it very sterile, very abstract, where it's, oh yes, design could be impactful, but we never actually go into the tangible or specifics of it. It's more of just like, oh yes, you can tell people that design thinking can do all these cool things, but I don't think we ever make the jump from the abstract to the specific. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I think that is maybe the crux of the UW Design program, though, where they hand us so many abstract ideas and theories and just have us execute them any way we can, which works for learning, but not perhaps preparing us for greater conversations. So yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, just doing this. It was the first time I did it. Hopefully it wasn't too bad. And thank you for all the answers. Yeah, of course. Thank you for, I guess, reaching out and talking about this. It's nice to know that people are paying attention or at least noticing. It's not that I'm trying to do this for attention or anything like that, but it's just oh, nice how to know dare that people you. are. <laughs> yeah, just the clout, you know, um, but it's just nice to, I don't know, have that. Um, so I hope I wasn't too rambly, but yeah, it's nice. It's just nice to talk about it. I appreciated it. Yeah.